Welcome to the Phase World Podcast. Engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. put a bit of yourself I believe into any role you perform and that has really taught me something that I've been able to apply in so many other areas not just performing but anything I do I try to say yes to everything to go into something with an open mind and I think that's something that you can apply in any industry when you're collaborating with people The very basis of it all, it's all about support. If you feel supported by your fellow collaborators or colleagues and you support them as well, then it's easy to communicate because you don't feel embarrassed, you feel safe, it's a safe environment. I don't think anyone has a right to be a performer, to be a creative person. You have to earn it because you have to show a dedication in any field, you've got to commit to it in a way that you earn the right to be able to do it. Hello, everybody. This is Fei Wu, your host for the Face World podcast. In case you're new to our show, I'd like to explain that this podcast is a place where I celebrate the lives of sung and unsung heroes, stories that are so resonating but you haven't heard of. Today, I would like to welcome Dan Cooper, who is an experienced designer, video producer, and project manager who loves working with brands and people. For 12 years, Dan worked as a principal performer in Blue Man Group, a world-class entertainment company, touring in multiple cities on several continents. By the way, he's still actively performing for Blue Man Group, including new shows in Boston coming up in November, late December, and early January 2017. Dan learned a lot from performing as a Blue Man, including skills in experience design, improvisation, and persuasion, which led him to consult for several companies and clients. How was Dan discovered for Blue Man Group's audition? What are some of the characteristics the company is looking for? How long was the training before Dan could appear on stage? And the brutal elimination process that's no different than the American Idol. As a jack-of-all-trades, Dan throws himself at a lot of things. He says yes a lot. On his website, dancoopercreative.com, under testimonials, friends and colleagues call him a hell of an artist, a great guy, a cheeky monster, and a first-class collaborator. Or something more dramatic, such as Dan reminds me that life is short and to embrace every moment of it to its fullest. In this episode, Dan takes you on and off stage as a blue man, the types of skills he acquired and how you can learn from him. Dan designed workshops for schools and companies to experience the magic of verbal and nonverbal communications. 
unlike some of the performers who are exclusively pursuing acting or whatever their domain knowledge may be, Dan explores the world much beyond the performing arts by choice, from managing wind farms offshore to helping musicians from around the world collaborate and produce projects every week, Dan's life is without a dull moment. With such diversification in his portfolio, Dan doesn't spend much time waiting for the next gig to come through. Some of the avid listeners of Face World is familiar with one of our most popular category called performing arts and entertainment. I'm seeing similarities among world-class performers. They're sharp, incredibly disciplined, and creative. It's not always obvious how much hard work they put in for years before they appear on stage and how quickly that dream can vanish right in front of their eyes. But every one of them said to me just how much they appreciate the opportunity and what they're able to learn about themselves in the process. Quick announcement, Freelance Live is a new video series live on Facebook I have been hosting. By the time you're listening to this, we probably have concluded all 10 of them. You can check out at facebook.com forward slash phaseworld, F-E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D. Like Dan, myself, perhaps you too are considering freelancing. This will be the series for you to check out in which we cover how to get new clients, how to identify bad ones, how to set yourself up for financial success, and courses, support networks, communities you can rely on. So don't miss that. Okay, without having to live on a tour bus or be covered with blue paint, let Dan share the story of a performer's life. for being here, Dan. I'm really excited to have you on my podcast. No problem. Well, I have a lot of questions, so I'm, I think this one will be really fun. I even tested to see, kind of took a, a picture of you and just posted to Facebook, and it was really resonating with a lot of people, and especially here in Boston, that Blue Man Group played such a significant role. And we talked about this before, Dan, to, to say that there isn't a lot of um, theatrical acts or entertainments uh, readily available in Boston. And Blue Man Group was here for many, many years, and nearly everybody has seen it. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of part of the city up there. I've, I've performed the show in Boston on many occasions, and... Um, it's like ubiquitous with the city. Whoever I talk to, everyone knows it. And even though it's in a very small theater kind of tucked out of the way. Charles it's Playhouse. The Charles Playhouse, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, it has become just part of the city. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree. And now, right before this interview, I was looking at the dedicated like website section for Charles Playhouse and I think Blumen Group really perfected the marketing endeavor in terms of celebrating 25 years of living in full color, $25, 25 giveaways, and a free ride from Uber to the Playhouse. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, the, that's one thing that um, Blumen Group has always done very well is, um, is is knowing how to market themselves. And at the very beginning, they didn't, they hardly did any advertising or any kind of aggressive marketing at all. It was all through word of mouth and these real unusual campaigns that they ran because they, they wanted to be different. So they've always set themselves apart 
when it comes to those kind of things. Mm, I think for that very reason, this certainly resonated with the Bostonians because there are many, many hippies living in the city. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it started, originated in New York, and then Boston was the second show to open. And I believe when it first opened in New York, they didn't have any kind of uh, formal marketing campaign. They were just posters of blue eyes all over the city with nothing else written. And people were like, what is this about? And all that used to be above the door of the theatre was a pair of blue eyes. You know, it didn't show anything of the show and it, it really drew people in because you can't really explain what the show is about, not very easily at least, without seeing it. It's one of those things. I've done the show for so many years and, and I know other performers as well. If we were asked, so what, what's the show about? We just we don't know what to say. <laughs> it's so hard to de describe it. Yeah. Well, how were you attracted to the show? How were you discovered? Um, I was performing in London. Um, I've always been an actor, so I performed in the West End and TV and film in London. And I heard about this show that was coming to the West End, which is the West End is the equivalent of Broadway in London. And I uh, thought, oh, I should check this out. And I play the drums anyway. So it was kind of a good combination because we have a lot of percussion in, in the show. Uh, and I went along and I auditioned and it went from there. The rest is history. Uh, they brought me out to New York to train and I've been working with the with this show on and off for about 10 years now. Wow, that's really amazing. So I would love to learn a bit more about Blue Man Group, but I before we get too deep into that, because people have a lot of questions, is I do want to mention that you truly are a jack-of-all-trades. <laughs> oh, uh, man. Yeah, a jack-of-all-trades, definitely a master of none. I just have been <laughs> fortunate. I just say yes a lot <laughs> and, get, and end up in some interesting situations. I really like that because I think what's really interesting about this episode is the fact that people can see that you really stand out in entertainment, in um, theater, but the fact that you can also do other things uh, is very compelling. So with that said, I'm going to kind of maybe cover some of the Blue Man Group questions first because I know people are itching to really learn more. And I myself have also seen this show and it was a very special moment for me uh, almost 13 years ago now. So, you know, you were discovered and I want to learn a bit more about the audition process and what are some of the attributes and characteristics that Blue Man Group was looking for in their actors? Um, it's very hard to say. And I've helped take auditions over the years as well. There's a certain kind of X factor that we're looking for. Obviously, we're looking for people that great drummers and very competent actors. But we want people to bring something of themselves to the character. They want they want somebody that's going to not just copy what they see, but bring their own personality. So in that way, it's very similar to any acting role that, you know, you, you put a bit of yourself, I believe, into any role you perform. Now, the audition process is unusual because obviously it's not like you can give somebody some lines and just say, learn these lines, come back and, and read them. There's kind of abstract ways we they find of bringing out in people what we're looking for. So it's important that everyone always feels relaxed in the auditions. Everyone is it's a really friendly, helpful environment. And we there's a there's a number of like exercises. Some of them are like classic theater improvisation exercises. Others are more tailored to specifically the Blue Man character or the Blue Man world. And we'll go through those and we'll get people to perform those. And then like any audition, people get cut and we, we they get stripped down 
uh, to a smaller group. And in the end, they'll get put in the makeup, in the audition process, because that's another thing. You know, your perception of someone can completely change once they put the makeup on. Someone that you thought was going to be great just may not look right up there once they get the makeup on. But And someone you had ne- not necessarily thought would be would work suddenly just comes to life once the, the makeup is on but it's a quite a long process and and then the audition process is is one part then you have the training process which is another like two or three months in new york wow and this is a uh fascinating to me because as you know i'm also friends with a, a number of people from Cirque du Soleil and i hear the same thing about how everybody go needs to go to montreal and called artistic training so regardless mm. of the fact that they may be gymnasts for decades or their entire life they still need to learn so many new things and oftentimes they feel almost overwhelmed by it and yeah that's interesting i went through a very similar experience because Essentially, when you start as a blue man, you need to forget everything you've done before. And I came in having had a lot of experience, and it took me a while to to learn to pretty much, you know, you got to let your ego go because you're going to get a lot of notes, you're going to get a lot of feedback and constructive criticism of your performance, and you have to just let be broken down. And that has really taught me something that I've been able to apply in so many other areas, not just performing, but anything I do, that to go into something with an open mind and have an, uh, a completely open perception of what's going on so you don't get upset if people give you feedback that you're not expecting. You just take it, work with it, you discuss it if you need to and, and make the changes and move on. And I think that's something that you can apply in any industry when you're Absolutely. collaborating with people. I noticed that too, having uh, worked with you uh, quite extensively recently, and then to kind of watch how you navigate and manage a client in, in this case without revealing his name, you know, someone who's kind of new to video production. I, uh, you know, I kind of experienced firsthand how comfortable you are to be able to answer a lot of his questions and concerns and to uh, really artistically directed him to work better with you, you know, rely on you for your expertise. So I really respect that a lot. Oh, that's great. Thank you. I know how I want to be treated and how if I'm not an expert in something, if I'm not fully aware of the intricacies of a, of a project, I know how I would want to be treated and how I want to be introduced to something. And so I try and behave that way to other people. And I think when you're working on a project for someone, particularly creatively, but not even in the, some of the more corporate business stuff I've done, it's, it's as much about getting the client to realize what they want as it is about giving them what they want, because sometimes they don't know what they want or they have an idea of some kind of end game, but they don't know how to get there. So it's about helping that journey and making that as smooth as possible. I, I like where you're going with this and I can so easily derail this. You know, briefly, you reminded me of the fact that I've been contacted by a college in Boston very recently. And this woman and I met uh, at a sort of a high school vocational uh, program committee meeting. Long story short, you know, she was asking me about project management and, you know, do you use Basecamp, uh, how to use Trello and all these things. And, and this morning I realized a lot of what the students and really seasoned professionals need to know is precisely what you just described and how to put them in a situation so that they can practice how to manage difficult uh, conversations or in this case, not necessarily difficult, but it's how to align people so they can be on the same page. Mm. 
uh, and be successful together. And you don't always have to have the same, be completely united. You you can be pulling on different ropes, but going in the same direction. You know, if you're trying to move a huge rock, you, it, some, it'd be easier to attach a bunch of different ropes to it and all pull, but pull in the same direction. You know, that's how I think of it. Um, so you, and it lets people have ownership of their projects as well. So you're not coming in saying, we need to do this, this and this. You help guide them in a way that it becomes their work as much as it is yours or anyone else's. And that something is something that I learned in Blue Man and actually other performances as well. When you're working as a team, people want to feel ownership of what they do. They don't want to be, feel like they've been told what to do. And I've made a mistake before of trying to control a group of people and tell them what to do. And you just people react in a way which just derails the project. And if you let people have their own identity still move towards the same goal, then it, everyone's happy. Absolutely agree with this. And I think you should probably teach that course. <laughs> so mm. I don't have to. Um, <laughs> no, that, absolutely. And um, I think that's very much related to Bloom and Group. I have not seen the show recently, but I very much look forward to that, watching it again when you're here in Boston at the end of the year. I remember somehow 13 years ago, I remember so vividly of going in, not knowing exactly what it's about. And personally, I am someone who just want to throw myself at something and let it surprise me that I don't want to necessarily read the fine print. And so I remember, you know, first of all, it's not vocal at all. So the Bloomin' were not talking. And yet at the beginning of the show, they already begin engaging with you, you know, whether you're a 70-year-old who's watching for the first time or a little five-year-old, and you kind of take them by their hands and then take them on a journey. So tell me about what was it like for you to do that, not knowing someone and looking completely different, you know, in this, in this case, by makeup. How do you do that? Um, putting the makeup on is like similar to uh, like a clown putting his nose on or someone who's doing mask work, putting on a mask. You become this uh, other character, this other person. And we, th and I think of as much as it's putting makeup on, it's actually taking off uh, my human mask, taking off my like Daniel mask and giving us this kind of neutral uh, appearance. It's such an interesting experience to see people react to you when they're faced with a blue man looking directly at them. There's an incredible range of different reactions I've had. I've had people actually scream and run out of the theater. And then other people are a lot more confident and will get up and kind of interact with you and some people are just embarrassed and some people uh, can't stop laughing. Um, we never scare anyone. We never, if it looks like someone's scared, we will move on. We don't want to intimidate anyone. We want everyone to feel good. But that really is the thing I enjoy most is the interaction with the people because you never know what's going to happen. It means it's a different performance every day. It keeps everything fresh um, and the audience becomes this other character in the show. I've been working on my soul And Lord, it takes its toll All these people running round me And I'm working on my soul I've been trying to mend my heart But I don't know... So fascinating because a lot of uh, 
what I noticed that end up happening or the conversations I have, uh, I have with all my guests, many of them don't know each other, is about the topic of transitions and not knowing what what will happen. So I would love to get maybe a little bit technical and have you, for as much as you can remember from seven, 10 years ago, what was involved in the training uh, itself in New York? Do you remember specifically what you learned and what you're good at and what are some of the completely new techniques to you? Uh, well, it was it's very structured. There's a good argument to say that, that you know, you can be the most creative when you have a structure around which to work. So we we were a timetable, basically. We'd start, I believe, I can't remember, maybe 10.30 in the morning, although we would all be in the studio by 9, 9.30, practicing beforehand. And first of all, we would learn, we learned the music for the show. We, we started learning the drumming parts, learning the, the melodies, and learning the technique which was involved to play a very unusual style of drumming, which is not what I was used to. I was used to playing drum kit, but this is a very stylized, almost tribal way of playing the drums. And it's also not just about the sound you make, it's about what you look like when you're playing. So you have to be able to physically um, embody the music as well as actually technically play it. But we would, we, are, we would have sessions where we'd learn the music, then we'd have sessions when we would learn the character, and then sessions where we'd learn the other kind of unusual skills that we have to have to perform the show. And that went on for a, a couple of weeks. And at the end of those two weeks, we'd learned the whole show, basically roughed out. And we, we were able to stumble through it and we performed it in a studio. And at the end of those two weeks, one, um, there were six guys in my training class. Uh, they let one of them go. And it was after that every week. You know, we would work for a week, improving the character, learning more of the show, becoming more competent. And then we would have this performance at the end of the week and they would say, OK, you made it through or sorry, you haven't made it through. Um, and in the end, we were actually put in the show off Broadway, performing the show, having not been fully hired but having learned the, learned the show completely. And we would go on a performance trainees and still not actually in my training class, but some of them, you know, down the line got let go after that because it's so hard to see a blue man in a studio performing. You cannot capture what it's like until you see this perform in front of a crowd because otherwise, you know, you've got nothing to work with. So we would, it's important to have someone perform the show. And so that's why we did it. So we could actually see what someone was like up there. And then from that, you know, I got hired and then they sent me to, I was in Chicago for a couple of years as well as many other places. Wow. I had no idea that you didn't have an agreement where like a job offer up front. No. Well, yeah, that's the thing. There is a, there's an agreement that you'll come and you'll train and then you will perform and you'll be assessed. And if you make it through, then you'll be made an offer to actually perform as a full-time blue man. Um, so you just understood. It's not like there, you know, there's anything underhand or any surprises, but it's no different to any other audition. You know, you might go and do a workshop and they might let you go. They might, they, it's just, that's the way that the acting world works, you know? Yeah. I, I am, a. Fortunately, unfortunately, so familiar with this and uh, have watched several of my friends kind of go through trenches and, you know, setting their own expectations. So I want to kind of just dial back a little bit because you were working at, in London at the time. You were in TV, film, and you were in your 20s, you know, uh, 10 years ago. So oh, my 20s. Oh. <laughs> wasn't so long ago. And uh, you were performing and all of a sudden you discover this. And tell me a bit about the transition 
back then? You know, what was it like to kind of pack up your bags and say, okay, I'm going to leave my country, my family, uh, and everything I'm familiar with, and I'm going to try this out. It may or may not work. Um, it was still like one of the hardest things I've ever done is to leave my family. I was, I could have only been going away for a few weeks or a few months, but as it turns out, I've been away on and off for about 10 years now. I was in a, a musical in London called Les Miserables um, when I was auditioning for Blue Man and I got the job. And then I finished Les Mis and the next job I did before I started training with Blue Man was actually a, a movie for Woody Allen. And so I just got into this, I uh, got a foot in the door in this really interesting film world in London. Was And off the back of the Woody Allen movie, I was getting some really good meetings and interesting connections. And then Blue Man comes up. I'm like, oh, what do I do? Do I stay in London and really focus on this aspect of my career or am I going to go away? And that was a huge decision. And I still think back now, I don't have any regrets at all, but it's like a sliding doors moment, you know? Mm. By the way, did you just mention Les Mis? Yes. Oh, okay. So that's kind of the only version I've ever heard of. And I actually watched Les Mis in London, believe it or not. Oh, right. Well, when did you see it? You may have seen me. <laughs> oh, you know, that's a good question. I was there much later. I think I was there 2010. Oh, no. I was, I was there from 2005 to 2006. It was phenomenal. And honestly, I've not seen it in the U.S. Um, I thought it was... I actually, I bought the mug. I bought everything. I, I never even buy any merchandise at all, <laughs> but I was so moved by the show. It's an incredible piece. I mean, I got to stand on stage and sing those songs every day for a year, over a year. And I was so lucky. And I was really lucky. I was in the 20th anniversary cast. Wow. So who, who were you in that show? I was, uh, I played a part called Montparnasse, who is one of the bad guys and one of the smaller characters and the, an ensemble member. And so I got to work with like Bubin and Schoenberg, the, origi- the the composers, they came to work with us. And Trevor Nunn and John Kerr, the original directors who, who created that version of the show 20 some years before in, um, in the Barbican in London where it first started, they came in to work with us. And we had this big gala performance and oh, it was fantastic to be able to work with all those people and just to be on stage singing those songs every day. I mean, I never got bored of doing that. And to get paid to do what you love is one thing, but then get to get paid to perform a show like Lemmy's was even it was even better. It was great. Wow. I, it's so funny. I interviewed uh, John Haggerty much earlier on on uh, my podcast, and uh, he was also in the show, and he was able to learn from one of the original actors whose name I, I don't recall at the moment, but he said the exact same thing. It was such a life-changing. Like, your life will never be the same. It's such a wonderful family to be a part of. And uh, in fact, he's just closed on Broadway. I think he closed a couple of, uh, a month or so ago because some of my friends that were in the cast with me in London were in that final cast in New York as well, playing Jean Valjean and, and Javert. And uh, so I, I, I went into the theatre and saw those guys just uh, a few months ago. And, you know, they those guys have made a career out of performing these roles. There's, it's kind of like Blue Man in a way. Some people just keep going back to Les Mis because it's such a great performance to be part of. Wow. That's amazing. So I want to kind of uh, take us back a little. I think all my guests' upbringing is very important. You know, whether you're born and raised in the U.S. or not, surprisingly, even some of my guests, you know, many of them grew up in, you know, small cities or uh, towns you've never heard of in the U.S. and they talk about what the experience was like. But for you, I think at this point, I think your accent will become pretty apparent. And, uh, 
it, it's funny. Whenever I mention that to my British friends, they're saying, no, no, you have an accent, not us. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get that all the time. I live in Nashville and you know, having lived in New York and, and Chicago and, and worked a lot in Boston as well, people barely bat an eyelid when they hear me speak in those cities, particularly in New York. But in, down here in the South, people are like, oh, where are you from? I love your accent. Yeah, <laughs> all the time. For sure. And I think it's so funny. Well, definitely talk about your upbringing. What really surprised me of knowing a number of people from England is that there's so many different accents there. Uh, I have a friend in Boston here, a lot of people pursuing uh, PhDs at Harvard, MIT, and they have, to me, they have a slightly different accent. And then we're talking about the Atherton twins uh, at Cirque du Soleil, currently in Paramore. When I when I interviewed them, I, I was just getting to know them. I almost had trouble uh, recording the podcast. They had a really strong accent that I wasn't familiar with. And yeah, I mean, with that said, tell us about uh, your upbringing, uh, you know, maybe your family. It uh, sounds like they're, uh, it's very entrepreneurial. Um, what was it like for you uh, to grow? Where did you grow up? I grew up in southeast London, just on the edge of the city. So it's like a 25-minute ride on a train, 30-minute ride, and you're in the West End, which is like downtown London, and 25, 30 minutes on the train the other way, and you're in beautiful rolling hills and countryside in Kent. And my sister would I've got one sister. We would both say the same thing, that we have the most incredibly supportive parents, and neither one of us would be doing what we do today if we hadn't have been lucky enough to have parents to support us like that. And, you know, uh, we I don't come from a particularly wealthy family, but we never wanted for anything, but, but we were never spoiled. Uh, so we learned to work for things and we were instilled with a very good work ethic because in 1994, when I was 14, my dad left the company he'd been working for since about the time I was born. And started his own family business, our own family business with a, a, a business partner. And so from that day on, we all became, even as teenagers, my sister and I worked for the company and learned about business, about marketing, about budgeting, about sales. Because with a small business like that, you do everything. And my sister actually went on to get a master's in mechanical engineering and went back and ran the company uh, and really was, the, you know, part of the reason why it, it was as successful as it was. And we actually it actually uh, we actually closed it down a few years ago and we moved on to some other things. But if it hadn't have been for our parents just saying yes to any opportunity that they ha- could find for us, you know, my, my dad came to every soccer match that I ever played, every rugby match I played. My mom, they came to every performance I've ever done at the school, uh, uh, local choir, local anything. You know, and it's the same for my sister. We were just a very supportive family. is kind of unusual in a way and uh, clearly you sound like you've never taken that for granted is you know one of the initiatives I've started in 2011 is trying to go to different high schools and and really be supportive of students who want to major in arts you know whether it's performing arts or visual arts so what I hear oftentimes even here in the U.S. 
uh, I can't even imagine what it's like in Asia, to be honest. And is that parents are somehow pushing away their kids, worrying that they might not be able to make a living. You, you will never be good enough to to even consider a Miz, you know, Blumen Group. That's that's always going to be a dream. And mm. so, what was the conversation like for you and your parents? You didn't even need a conversation to pursue what you loved. No, there was never really any doubt that. We, the education system, at least when I was in it, works a bit differently in Britain as it does in America. But we start to specialize from the age of around 15. So then we drop some subjects. So I dropped like geography and history and then picked up more music and drama. And then in the last two years of school, I did my A-levels, which are like our leaving exams. Uh, they take two years to do and we just do three subjects or four subjects. I did music, English literature, and theatre studies. And I can remember a meeting that I had with my headmaster of the school before, well, you know, when I was choosing that, and my parents were there. We sat down with uh, John Tobin, uh, my headmaster, who I'm still in touch with and still friends with today. And he said, well, this, oh, well, Mr. Cooper, this is, this is a rather narrow, I, I forget his exact words, but I, this is a rather narrow road you've chosen here. And I said, yeah, well... That's what I want to do. And he said, well, okay, good, do it. And and so there was really no way I could do anything else. Um, <laughs> I happened to get into a, 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 a stage school, a drama school, and then got a great agent when I left and, and one thing led to another. But there was never really any conversation as to what else I would do. I mean, I, we were realistic. There were, you know, I, would, I always had some kind of backup, but not because I would deliberately went after one but I just happened to have other skills like I'd work for the family business you know and I had other interests I think that's crucial yeah yeah you know I think we're it's interesting how this conversation kind of flowed to where are where we are now the fact that you uh your parents and your sister uh, were not in performing arts and they were able to kind of lead you on to trying other things and we we're talking about you know marketing and you know digital video production I mean, these are kind of in my wheelhouse and uh, things that you could easily pick up clients for so I'm interested in having you kind of articulate the way that I personally believe you've treated your career path very differently than some of the other artists out there. Um, briefly, which I'm only hearing if we're in, you know, five second sound bites from you, and I really want to learn a lot more, is the fact that you've taken on uh, projects on your own and you've worked offshore on a boat uh, for a wind farm project and you've been to prisons. Could you like break that down for me? How did you find time to do these things? And uh, what, what did you do outside of uh, being in Blue Man Group? Well, I mean, I have to say, I, I didn't, I wasn't sent to prison. I hadn't <laughs> committed a crime. But it's a, just an interesting story that a good friend of mine, and who was a, a former Blue Man guy called Ed Gregory, who has a company in Vegas now called Photos uh, in, in Color Studios. And we had started making some corporate videos and things together a few years ago. And both of us, we're still great friends and very creative and we'll work together as much as we can. But we we went on an adventure. We just decided to go to Australia and Asia for a while and booked a ticket and went to Thailand, Singapore, and Malaysia. And it just so happened that we'd been working for Blue Man out on a cruise ship and had known someone from South Africa who, whose family from South Africa sponsored 
an inmate in prison in Bangkok. Uh, she was a, a woman, a South African woman who had been caught smuggling drugs. And to be honest, whenever I'd heard about this, you know, you hear about people, particularly in Bangkok and, and countries like that, where they have very strict penalties for drugs. You, I've always thought, oh, well, it's your own fault. You get into that kind of thing. And I just picture these kind of middle class white people trying to get make extra money and getting caught. And But th then I learned more about this problem, particularly with women in South Africa, very, very poor people that had no other choice. They were told that they could make this run to Thailand and back and make more money they could, than they could make in God knows how long. And uh, they have really, really didn't have any other choice, almost tricked into it. And she, she got caught and was put in prison. And when we went to see her, she'd been in jail 17 years. Oh, my God. And my friend just said, I said I was going to Bangkok. She said, would you mind going to see her? Just She doesn't obviously get a lot of visitors. So we we went along and we saw her. Uh, and that was an incredible experience. Um, we really have no, we don't really have any idea of <laughs> what the what it's like. And. Um, and she was saying at the time that the, the conditions in the prison weren't very good. And she had a son who she had never seen, you know, again. <laughs> and I don't, she's been released from prison now. Uh, there was an amnesty after there were some big floods in Bangkok and they needed to make space in the prisons. And the king of Thailand had a, a pardoned a lot of people and released them. So I don't know if she ever got to see her son again, but she it's such a sad story. So we went along and then we put money in her account and we bought simple things like soap and some chocolate and some and rice and luxuries for her to have because she doesn't have any money she really in part she relies on people donating and there was a, a shop in the, in the prison that was all the objects were that you could buy were behind this glass and you wrote down what you wanted and then they delivered it to the inmate and it was an incredibly moving experience and very humbling to see these people being walked out and sitting and talking to her. Then, you know, you get told you have to go. And I mean, it was a humbling experience indeed. So, so that's one of the interesting experiences I've had. But as far as you mentioned the offshore work I've done, well, my, uh, I mentioned before my sister is an engineer and she runs a company which does high voltage electrical installations, basically plugging in huge cables to the national grid for trains, uh, for railway lines, hospitals, stations, you know, uh, things like that. And it's a very long story, so I won't tell it all, but I ended up going out to help project manage this part of the completion of this wind farm in the North Sea um, with a couple of hours notice, thinking I was going for about three or four days and staying for five, six weeks living on a boat. And it was very challenging, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, 20-hour days. Yeah, I mean, it was the start of this project and things hadn't started very smoothly. So I was helping to kind of get it up and running, but also not knowing really much about electrical installations. I was out there as a stopgap. Fortunately, I'm pretty good with organizing and, and essentially it's just project management and spreadsheets and managing people. And I learned more of the technical aspect as I went along and kind of, you know, fudged my way through it and blagged my way through it. I don't know if I would 
put the chance to go and do it again, but it was definitely character building and very interesting experience. You see, this is uh, an aspect that sometimes I don't hear from other actor friends or actress friends of mine, where I know that a lot of these shows could be seasonal, um, you know, depending on the show, obviously, but during the downtime, you may be the only person that I know who... Uh, actively seeking out just other opportunities, what paid or unpaid, to kind of fill the gaps and yet kind of provide you with such fresh perspectives on other things that might, one, interest you, two, um, you will be paid for. So, you know, have you heard that from other people to say, like, damn, you're, you're doing so much and you're really living life to the fullest? I mean, have you heard those things? Yeah. Yeah, I have. I mean, I feel a little bit pretentious saying it, you know, it's all kind of self-aggrandizing. But yeah, I, I, I've, I do a travel blog called stuffwhativeseen.com. And some friends of mine will read it and people, I've got different followers and people look at my Facebook over the last few years. And I've often heard the comment of like, what are you doing? Where are you? I can't believe every time I see you, you're in a different place in a different country doing something different. But I've just been very fortunate that I've had the background and the experiences that I've had and then being at the right place at the right time and I try to say yes to everything. Speaking of yes to everything, uh, I noticed that besides the marketing and project management, you also kind of uh, conduct this communication workshop for kids and corporations, which I find so fascinating to translate what you learned from Blue Men Group to, to doing something along that line. And it's so different than everything else you just talked about. Could you kind yeah. of yeah, could you talk about that? Well, yeah, it's not just from Blue Man Group. It's based on my experiences in general as an actor and a performer and kind of creative enthusiast, to, to borrow a term that you coined about me. Basically, there's so much you can apply in you know, the way you approach a performance. You can apply so many of those skills and techniques to so many other things in education, in business, and the way you collaborate with people, the way you listen to ideas, the way you develop an idea – there's some really interesting ways that you can get on your feet and perform little exercises, which then you can directly relate to a project that you're you're doing in some kind of business, which has got nothing to do with acting and performing whatsoever. Because at the the very basis of it all, it's all about support. If you feel supported by your fellow collaborators or colleagues and you support them as well, then it's easy to communicate because you don't feel embarrassed. You feel safe. It's a safe environment. So if you can build a, an environment where everyone feels supported and valued, then to be honest, you don't even think about communication because it just happens naturally. But I, I, I've, I've developed this workshop which helps to kind of exemplify certain aspects of of working with other people. And um, I feel like it's really successful. People have of, of come away from it very kind of energized and excited about going back to their own environments and applying the things that we talked about. I've been trying to start again Thank God I got my friends And they're standing here beside me No, I'm glad I got my friends I've been letting and um, I want to just uh, have a shout out to, uh, you know, Dan Cooper Creative dot com and 
you know, where people can contact you and learn more about how you would structure such an event, maybe uh, tailored to their company or their school, um, I noticed that's something that you're really good at. You have a lot of um, empathy sort of towards how to create an experience like that. And I'll make sure to include the link and also the video on the blog post as well. And um, one thing I wrote down, I realized we have not given you enough credit as a musician as well. We haven't really truly talked about music since the beginning uh, of this podcast. But one thing I I think there's a parallel is... I was lucky enough to be truly backstage at Cirque du Soleil, and uh, I witnessed, first of all, I watched the show and um, was curious, and then I was backstage and I watched people kind of come on and off the show, and I see them practice. It's just so much dedication, really puts me to tears. And But one thing I noticed I love the most is communication, the fact that there are, I think on that show alone, there are people from over 30, 35 countries, and I heard so many languages. I thought it was so beautiful, um, and how easily they kind of switch that on and off. I heard, obviously, English, French, Russian, and uh, some I didn't recognize even. I want to hear a little bit of that. Was it the case for Blumen Group? And also in parallel to a project you've collaborated with a friend of yours called uh, Songs on Sundays and sort of engaging and collaborating with musicians around the world to create, you know, these musical pieces. So tell me a little bit more about that. Um, in the States, it's mainly English speaking, there's their first language, people that perform or are involved with Blue Man. Um, but I performed the show in Germany and in Holland before. And then you're working with a guy from Brazil. We've got a Polish Blue Man. Is uh, In Europe, we have a much more kind of diverse citizenship background. English is the main language we use. But, I mean, I was living in Germany for a while performing the show, and I made a point to learn some of the language because, you know, you, I feel like it's a respect. It shows a respect to a country, but also it helps you get by. But that's the, the, the good thing about the show itself is that it, it transcends any kind of language. You know, we don't use a lot of spoken word in it, so you don't need to understand anything to be able to appreciate the show. There's no language barrier there because everyone involved actually speaks English. But we, there is definitely a geographical barrier there because none of us are in the same place. We've got people all over the United States, in Europe. I've done it when I've been in Australia before, uh, as well as people in the UK. And basically, we, we build, we write a new song every week. Someone puts up a scratch track, like their idea for a song, then different people, for whoever wants to contribute, record their parts and puts it on the cloud. And some, then at the end, someone downloads all those and mixes it together and then we release it. And it's, it's such an incredibly uh, cool way of collaborating with people because as a writer, as a songwriter, I've put many of my songs up there and you don't always know what you're going to get back. It's not like when you would normally record a song, you go into a studio with a producer and you say, well, this is a sound we want. This is what we want. Uh, and then you get the people to do what you want. Here, like you're sending it out and you don't know what they're recording, then suddenly all this stuff comes back. So oftentimes I've had songs of mine sound completely different to how I expected it, but it always with great results. You know, I, I'm really grateful to a good friend of mine, Jordan Woods Robinson, who started this project. He really developed the, the, the concept and I came on board with some other guys a few years ago and we kind of honed the workflow. And it's like a slick 
uh, a slick process now where we, we we use a lot of online collaboration tools and uh, it's something that we couldn't have done 15 years ago. You would just there wasn't the technology to be able to do it. Yeah. What are some of the software, if you don't mind? Well, we all record in whichever DAW. For example, um, I use Logic Pro. Some guys use Cubase. Some guys uh, will use something else. We base the project in Basecamp, which is a like a project management collaboration tool. And it's a great way of this kind of creative discussion because it allows us to have separate discussions for separate songs and then one you know different groups for maybe larger scale discussions about the project and we had one just for the producing team the admin administrators and and one for the, the collaborators and it, it's like a conversation you know it's like a a chat like a forum and we would type comments about the song and and you could see what everyone else had used uh, 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 everyone else had said and also you can upload things and documents and files so they're all right there so that was was kind of ideal and we used it in conjunction with google drive it is so easy and there's an iphone app there's an ipad app you can do it natively on mac or, or on pc so this just so easy we couldn't have done this 10 or 15 years ago and it's given us this new way of creating music yeah, absolutely. And then with your background in project management, what I find really fascinating is all that you just described is a workflow, which without a proper workflow, pretty much nothing will really happen. And, you know, it's like seven-year-olds, uh, kids playing soccer and everybody's going after the ball. So yeah, yeah. tell me a bit more about, you know, what worked, what didn't work. Uh, what was that design process like? Well, it's interesting because every year that we've done the, the we've we've, carried out the project it's changed slightly because we've learned new ways to hone the process and like trim the fat maybe of you know it's to make it easier we and this year a lot of the people that are normally involved were really busy and so we wanted to make it as simple as possible and as easy as possible so it just was a process basically that over the years is trial and error and we'll try something and we if we like it it will work like, like we originally started putting the songs up on a blog format called Tumblr. And so I would write, you know, the posts in Tumblr and put them up, and it just wasn't powerful enough for what we needed. We we, we wanted to have more flexibility over the appearance of the way we presented the songs every week, to be able to write about them, to be able to link, to have images and stuff. And so we switched to use a WordPress-based blog. And it just opened up so many more possibilities. But we only came to that after a year of doing it like that and realizing that this just doesn't work very well. And at the time, Jordan had been using Tumblr. I'd been using WordPress. And I said to him, hey, man, look, let's try this out. And in the true nature of what we do, like he, was, he just said, yes, let's try it. If it works, it works. And it did. And so that's how we came about that. But it's, a lot of it is trial and error. Mm, love that. So I would love to kind of uh, close the podcast by some of the questions I mean, I guess, first of all, is there something that you feel like we haven't talked about that you're eager to share? Overall, I would say I like to keep busy. <laughs> that really is it for me. If I'm not doing something, I'll find something to do. And just keeping busy. That's why I've done so many things. Just I don't like to sit around. <laughs> yeah, I love this part is very true. You know, I interviewed a, a surfer and a writer Um uh, so Clint Willis and then 
I said, you know, what if I want to surf? And he said, you surf. So if you want to be creative, just be creative. You don't need mm. permission, approval to do that. And, you know, in your position, and we're fairly close in age, but I wonder if you were to give advice to people perhaps in their early 20s and just kind of breaking into, we're still even younger, still contemplating whether performing arts, theater is something they, they want or they should pursue. What are some of the measurements or some of the things or questions they should uh, think about? Well, there's something I've said for years and years. It's only recently someone said to me, that, that sounds really mean. You shouldn't say that to people. But like when I talk to young actors or young performers, honestly, the first thing I'll say, I say, give up. Don't bother. Forget it. Don't, because you're never going to get anywhere. Because if you can then go on to succeed and go on to do it when people are telling you things like that, because they're going to, they will always say, oh, no, you need a backup. You shouldn't be doing this. Then you deserve to be doing what you do. You, I don't think anyone has a right to be a performer, to be a creative person. You have to earn it because you have to show a dedication in any field. You know, you've got to commit to it in a way that, you earn the right to be able to do it. And so I would say to people, um, I've been in front of crowds of students before, and they say, have you got any advice? You know, I'd be like, yeah, give up. Just give up. And they're like, what? I'm like, well, if you, can, if you can succeed when people are telling you to give up and keep on going on, you, then you deserve to be doing it. I, don't, I hope they don't give up. I really don't. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's like, I remember when I was, uh, I watch how parents treat kids when they cry and they kind of get their attention. And my mom said when I was crying as a baby, she would just, you know, clap her hands and would just like pretend that she's having a great time. And I would just be really annoyed. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, that's very, that's kind of intuitive. Yeah. Counterintuitive. But I, I really like what you said about that. That's awesome. But also just say yes. Yes, and, which is the basis of all improvisation is yes, and, is to agree with someone else's idea, then offer up something to help develop it. Just say yes to everything, be it uh, a trip to a, go and see a movie, because you never know, you might bump into that night, to go and see a show, you might meet some great people, to to go and help someone out on the project for their school, to to sing in a band here, to do whatever, just say yes. The worst thing that can happen is you don't enjoy it and you can just leave and, you know, not do it again. <laughs> right. And do something different. So I guess if we were to throw out a challenge for those of uh, the people who are listening right now, like whether they're in performing arts or not, they could be a project manager, mm. you know, what do you think, like, what would you do in that case to kind of, let's say you have nothing planned in the next couple of weeks and you're eager to try something new, where would you go? You know, what are some of the resources that you have to kind of tap into that? Oh, well, I mean, that's a tough question. It, it, it depends on where you live, what your interests are. Maybe talk to some friends and find out, email five friends and find out what their favorite thing to do is. Nice. And just pick one and, and say, okay, we're going to do that next weekend and make a plan and stick to it. Or like Google weird things to do at the weekend. You know, be creative, you know, and find something weird to do and just go and do it. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, do that thing you've been meaning to do for six months. Just commit to it. Get someone else involved so you can be held accountable and do it. Mm -hmm. Nice. That's amazing. This is great, Dan. Great episode. Thanks so much for chatting with me and spending the hour 
on no Faith's world. No, thanks for having me. You guys, that was super fun. Hey, it's Faye. I'm back for a few words at the end of the show. I hope you enjoy what you heard. You can visit us online at faceworld.com to find out other episodes from this category or topic, or you could explore other awesome people who are artists and designers, digital marketers, performing artists, authors and speakers, entrepreneurs, students, educators, and more. For this reason, we've taken your feedback and created a landing page to most easily navigate by categories and topics. Simply visit podcast.faceworld.com to learn more. Sincerely, I want to thank you for your support. Bye for now.